Welcome to the HR Uprising podcast. This highly practical podcast series explores HR and management hot topics and challenges through conversations with relevant experts and real-life people professionals. Brought to you by Actors Software, our aim is to build a better workplace for people. The HR Uprising is about collaborating and supporting each other to build the confidence and skills to rise up to each challenge and deliver real, lasting business value. You can find out more at hruprising.com or join our LinkedIn community. Now introducing your host, chartered psychologist, best-selling author, entrepreneur and speaker, Lucinda Carney. Hello and welcome to this week's HR Uprising podcast. I'm your host, Lucinda Carney, and this week we are going to talk all about interview e-skills. I'm aware that in this you know, day and age, what's going on in terms of the current environment, there are many, many HR professionals, people professionals out there with huge amounts of talent, but also who are experiencing the pain of multiple applications for roles. And therefore, we have talked about how to interview in the past. And it was one of our most, it's certainly in our top five most popular HR uprising episodes, which is pretty phenomenal. Therefore, I thought the best thing I could do is go back our first ever repeat guest and ask Joe Irwin, to come along and give us some tips on the other side of the of the spectrum if you haven't come across the uh the podcast actually which is interviewing skills um i'll put a link in the show notes because i say it's absolutely fantastic we have so much great feedback about it as such a practical episode um and i say joe's now going to turn the tables and um welcoming her all the way from sunny ireland (laughs) it's not sunny here to be honest i doubt it's not sunny over there and um have you on to understand how we can best sell ourselves at interview so welcome Joe. Thanks Lucinda, it's great to be back. So thank you so much for joining and I know that this is what you do for a living and actually it'd be great to, you do lots of coaching around interviewing don't you, what's your sort of role around this, why is this your expert subject if you like? Yeah thanks Lucinda, so as you know I set up my training company i4 training seven and a half years ago and although a significant amount of my work is training and facilitating I have I created a niche or created a name for myself as specializing in specifically competency-based interviewing. So I see hundreds of clients and coach them individually uh, in preparation for competency-based interviews. Um, And I agree with you in the current climate, there are are opportunities out there. A lot of people struggle with competency-based interviewing um, and the ability to structure uh, their uh, preparation or structure their answers. I'm also hoping for the people that tend to listen to your HR uprising podcast that this will be useful if anybody comes to them asking them for advice as HR professionals how to prepare for upcoming interviews that they could perhaps uh, pass this link on to them um, and, and that would give additional help to any advice they might provide for themselves anyway. Because it is actually a sales job isn't it that's the thing and every you know, lots of people with lots of talents, but maybe if they don't present themselves in the best way, then they, they, you know, they might be the best person for the job, but you've got to deliver that when you're actually being interviewed. And actually, before we go into the interview skills, you know, how to be a good interviewee, let's perhaps talk about um, how to apply for a role, because certainly I've been recruiting recently for roles that Previously, we might have had 10 or 20 applicants and we had 300 applicants um, for the role. And it's a a really different environment when you are recruiting people with that volume of inquiries. Um, I mean, certainly what you then did, what I found myself doing was 
almost looking for reasons to discount because you can't read things in massive detail. And I was quite surprised how many applicants really were incredibly unsuitable for the role um, and also how rare cover letters were and even rarer was a cover letter that was clearly aimed at the role in question so from some a point of view of somebody who's been recruiting recently personally I, I would say that it's probably better to go for fewer roles if you're trying to get the interviews in the first place fewer roles with higher quality cover letters that are personalized than lots and lots of applications it's just an observation I, I have my other observation actually about CVs is that sometimes the most glamorously marketing-led CVs where people have sent them off and they come back looking like all nice and colourful and, and that sort of thing, they're actually quite distracting and hard to read. So make sure that your CV really does put your, your skills and experiences at the top. It's really easy to see that. Make sure it's not chronologically older stuff first. I got a few CVs which had that. Make sure you've got your most recent experience at the top so that that person who's doing the sift can see the vital information in the top half of your CV alongside a covering letter and personally I think that would give you a greater chance of getting an interview so that's my personal experience. Um, Joe, is there anything you'd add to that from your point of view? Yeah no I think the key thing as you're saying Lucinda is the ability to tailor you've got to tailor both the cover letter and tailor the CV using the job description and any information you have about the organization because of the number that people are looking at. Mm. Um, I think it's the same principle applies in the interview itself to the written application, is if you're not putting yourself in the shoes of the future employer, uh, you're not going to be tailored and ensure that you're going to hit their needs. So same thing applies. You have to tailor it, not only because it looks like you've made effort, but like you say, if you've got a big pile of CVs and covering letters, you're looking to actually just discard, discard. You won't make the cut in the first place. So, yeah. yeah, it's all about their needs and actually thinking about what is it that they are looking for, not what I want to show. And I think it just shows a little bit of laziness if you're just putting in a very generic CV or generic cover letter. Absolutely. And then people will interpret that as a trait that they don't want to recruit for. Again, it's just putting ourselves in the shoes because many people who are listening are familiar being um, recruiters. Um, it's actually making sure we are applying that knowledge isn't it back to to ourselves so I suppose let's imagine that we've got through that first cut and we've got that interview I'm sure that part of being a good interviewee must be about preparation what would be your suggestions there Joe? Yeah well what I have is in terms of thinking about uh, coming on the podcast today Lucinda I've got three tips or three ideas for things that people should bear in mind when they're preparing. Certainly there will be things that I would encourage my clients to do uh, prior to the big day. Um, and the first one actually applies to both the preparation for the actual interview, but also what we were just speaking about that in terms of the cover letter and CV. There are three key questions that I think people should either look to ask the hiring manager if possible, look to ask somebody working in that organization if they can't speak directly to the hiring manager, and at the bare minimum to reflect on themselves. So the first of those questions would be, what are the key priorities for the job or the role? Now, I know the job description should outline what people are, are looking for, but I find very often, certainly with big organizations, these job descriptions can become quite generic. They're often a little bit cut and paste, and you have to be superwoman or superman to be able to deliver on all of the roles and the responsibilities. So I would be looking at straight from the horse's mouth, what are the key priorities for the role? That'd be the first question. The second question, which I think helps provide focus for perhaps the examples that you might use for your competencies, would be what are the key challenges facing either the department, the role or the organisation? And again, 
it will just help you ensure that you're thinking about it from the other side of the table as in what is it that's keeping that manager up awake at night if anything <laughs> but what is it on their plate that you can offer to help with so if for example one of the challenges is we have a very fragmented team. We've had a lot of turnover. Uh, we've got an issue with we've only had an acting manager in the position. You're obviously going to prepare answers which are really hammering on around teamwork, leadership, management. So knowing what the key challenges are. And then the third question, which you may remember we talked about in the podcast on interviewer skills, it's what I call my gold dust question, is in 12 months time, what will I have delivered that would exceed expectations? So if you can really think about the answer to that question, um, you are going to be able to tailor both your CV covering letter and your interview examples to know what it is that manager would look for in a candidate who is exceeding their expectations. And I also think it shows that you are focused on wanting to be given expectations and do well at them. So those will be three questions I think can help focus because a lot of people I meet, they're overwhelmed with information. It's as if they're cramming for an exam. And they come to me with an A4 folder full of notes. So it's really focusing and pinpointing the answer to those three questions that I think can help people with their prep. Yeah, actually, it was very powerful. I got asked that with um, someone we were interviewing. And it's it also challenges the interviewer and helps you really think, well, what do I want out of that? But it's it's definitely by, by pushing it back on the interview and, and think about that, you realize that the person is very customer focused. If you like, they are really focused on achieving something. It's a good question to be, to be asked to think about for sure. So, um, so if you've got that, that prep, um, is there anything else you'd want to do to make sure that you're going to deliver everything to come over well? Yeah. I mean, and then we've really got to look about that. We're talking that will help focus the content on what you're going to prepare and what you might say. We've got to obviously consider the, the how, the nonverbal, the delivery. My personal view is the competency-based interview process, particularly with larger organizations, uh, is very structured. It's a very rigid process. And quite often people are shocked with just how transactional it is. Literally, can you give me an example when you showed? Can you give me a time when you did? Um, I ask people to think about this as a presentation, not a conversation. So just as you would need to prepare to give a great presentation, I would then ask people to think about that nonverbal side of things. I think people need to practice out loud for these interviews. I think they need to record themselves on the phone to listen out for their own filler words. Is it kind of, like, you know, quite, I suppose, is something here in Ireland with very often on the west of Ireland, I suppose, I suppose I'm good at decision making. Well, are you or aren't you? Mm. So these little filler words come in when people are nervous. And I believe the only way you can be fluid and flow is to practice out loud. I think ideally you want to get some stooges. You need some real life people to practice uh, sitting with you across the kitchen table um, while you deliver uh, your interview answers. Uh, if you use a template, you can print it off, get them to, to literally look through that with you. But I don't believe you can get away without that out loud practice. You would never have an actor sent a script for a film who goes straight to filming it. The reason they do the rehearsals is to get that fluidity and that flow. Um, and I wouldn't leave it to chance. Why would you? I would just ensure that you practice and practice and practice. Very interesting that. I wonder how many people do that. Um, generally I think that was probably quite rare and although it seems really common sense when you say it like that you wouldn't go and do a massive presentation without rehearsing would you so why do we particularly when the stakes are really high it's a very competitive market why would you leave it to chance so actually have that that rehearsal and see what you um, pick up yeah. and we don't realize when we've got those filler words it, so I listen back on a podcast to myself you realize when you're 
when you're offering things and the sort of things that you say is complete non-words, you're unaware of it at the time um, without that feedback. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, an instant comes to mind. I was coaching a GP recently for a role up in Dublin um, and within his short two minute sort of elevator pitch, which will be the tell us about yourself sort of overview of his key key points he had 14 kind ofs and 11 you knows and sometimes he'd double it up it's kind of you know and he had no no knowledge no self-awareness about the prevalence of that it's it's not always an issue if it's occasional but when it becomes overused it becomes quite a little bit of an irk for for interviewers it can become quite jarring as soon as you notice something like that then they stop listening to the content and they just listen to the the non-verbal which means you've lost it really in that context haven't you the, the messaging uh, and and nerves exacerbate it yeah the other thing i'd like to mention just on non-verbals lucinda and this is something which is challenging uh, with a lot of interviews now being moved on to virtual platforms is the importance of eye contact so eye contact would be the number one skill you have at your disposal to keep those members of the panel listening to you it's the skill that i think people I can see them nodding their heads when I'm talking about it, going, yeah, Joe, yeah, 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 no, I know I can't touch it. I'm a good people person. I'm great with eye contact. When they're in the hot seat and they're under that nervous sort of pressure, I find people, their eye contact, it just falls through the floor. So along with practicing and the verbal side of your out loud practice, I would have a friend or family member in one kitchen chair. I'd have two chairs either side of them and I would be giving that definite eye contact and moving my head in a definite way while I practice because I'm not leaving it then to chance. I'm far more likely to remember it in the interview. Ideally, I'm suggesting 60% to the person who asked the last question with 20% to the other two, even the person who's writing notes. If you had a three person panel, a 60-20-20 split. But I wouldn't leave it for chance. I would be practicing that as part of my routine with my nonverbal sort of rehearsals when I'm doing, um, as I say, my out loud practice. That is also a really good point. I think we should touch on Zoom interviews. I'm conscious of where my webcam is at the moment, so perhaps come on that. But also the eye contact in a in a uh, meeting. So we had people who came into face to face interviews after Zoom interviews, and occasionally you might ask um, one member of the panel, if you like, to answer a question. Even if you do that, make sure you don't exclusively give eye contact to that member of the panel because they then start to feel quite uncomfortable. And this particular panel member actually sort of said afterwards, I felt like I got too much eye contact. I felt a bit weird, like they were just talking to me. Um, and I understood why that had happened because this question had been asked for their benefit. But it's being careful to make sure we do distribute where we're looking. But moving on to that with Zoom, which I know I get picked up on quite often because of where my camera is. So right now, as I'm talking to you on Zoom, you are looking directly at me. So clearly your camera is directly over your screen. So I feel like you're giving me eye contact. My camera is slightly to a side. And so therefore, you're seeing just a slight side of my head. And again, in the screening interviews I had for the role, um, I had somebody who had their camera kind of it must have been on the on their desk almost so it was it was kind of going up their nose if you like it was really awkward and again I found that incredibly distracting it was very hard to actually um listen to what they were saying because the angle of what of the way which I was looking at them was weird uh so you kind of lost it there and also it shows quite low self-awareness um at points on Zoom, practice that yeah, you've got yeah. to practice that. So, you know, a couple of tips on Zoom. Number one is you want to have the camera at the eye level. So ideally, you want your shoulders a third of the way up the screen and your top of your head a th your, or your eyes are sort of a third of the way up the screen. You want to make sure you're front lit. And that might mean obviously not having the window behind you, uh, but also having a lamp or a desk light in front of you. Um, and the whole point on the eye contact for me, Lucinda, is so key. It's the idea that 
you if you're a people person you naturally start looking down to the thumbnail image of the interviewer which means you're not giving eye contact at all uh, you put a post-it note with a big arrow on it and you stick it on your laptop to keep reminding you you've got to look straight down the barrel of the lens of the lens of the camera to give the impression you're giving eye contact it's hard but it's the idea that you're sort of moving sideways um, yeah. and making sure that you give eye contact to all of the panel I can't stress it enough it's it's incredible yeah. when I run my interview skills courses how many people look at me as if I'm patronizing them about eye contact and that when I put them in the hot seat in the sort of role play I'd say 20% of people and that's over years 20% of people I'd say actually do manage to master that eye contact the thing you don't so know yeah, no, they don't. They just look at one person, as you say, which makes that interviewer feel uncomfortable. And the other two panel members have gone to sleep or they're thinking about what they're having for dinner. Mm. Um, but for me, the uh, the working the room is key. You don't know who is the stiff marker and who is the easy marker. It's very, very tempting when you're nervous to overlook at the the panel member who's smiley and kind looking and giving off a warmth mm. and actively listening and nodding. They could be the stiffest marker of the three. The person who's looking half asleep or the person who looks deadpan or really stern and, you know, fierce looking could be the easy touch. Mm. And you've put it all on that one person. So you've got to go in and work all three of them. And I think that's an important point as well to remember if you're doing an internal interview. A lot of my candidates would be finding it more challenging interviewing internally than to strangers. There's a tendency to either look overlook at the line manager or the person you know or under look at them which makes yeah. them feel even more excluded so you've got to go in as if they're all strangers pitch your answers as if they are I say don't know you um, but that you also make sure you work all three of them and I think again that links back to the importance of rehearsal because if you don't rehearse what you're going to say then you are going to just go on autopilot about how you're looking those things we're talking about here you need to be alert and kind of on your game to think about where your eye contact is going to make sure you're doing it well I guess rehearsal on both cases to make sure you don't just habitually look to one place um, yeah it's quite interesting so so many obvious things there's a couple of other things you talked to me before about with the zoom thing and I mean for the benefits of listeners Joe is looking directly at me and she's modeling her behavior but she has a window behind you you talked about there's other things to be careful on zoom interviews aren't there so the window behind you or even to the side of you just makes it very very difficult for the panel to see your facial expressions um, for example we spoke just before coming on coming on here making sure that your notifications are turned off on the laptop or your phone if you're using your phone because of that shock when something pops up to remind you, you know, take your cake out the oven and you're halfway through your interview. So it's just this idea that you are making sure that you are minimizing the distractions, but making it as easy as possible for the panel to see your face because we need to overcome the challenges of being in a remote situation. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so those apply to remote and as I think, again, practical tips there. So then going into the actual interview answers, I mean, all these things to think about, we haven't even gone on to actually answering a question yet, have we? What would you say is the best way to, to manage there? Okay, well, I'd like to, again, it, it's always a power of three. Uh, both Lucinda and I, we, we both know we, we're salespeople, our background starting, our, our life back when we began our careers. Selling aerial sales. photos. So I that with pain. Door-to-door <laughs> <laughs> -door selling, aerial photographs was probably the best, best learning experience in terms of sales. And you are right, Lucinda, an interview is a sales process. You're a product, they're the buyers, and you need to be able to sell. Um, I always ask people to think about the fact that you may be able to visualize this. You're a small toy robot inside a box. 
you're a great little product. You've got lots of experiences and knowledge and little things that you can do. On the day of an interview, the buyers, the panel members, don't have the opportunity or the pleasure of being able to take you out of the box and have a play with you to see whether you are really as good as you think you are. What we need to work on is packaging ourselves up. And the first of my three key sort of sales tips is you need to have three key reasons why you are the best product. These would be the equivalent of three strap lines that are written on the outside of your box. So if we're taking the analogy of a small toy robot, it would be that you're the top selling toy within you know, the UK in 2019. It might be that you are easily easy to set up and install. Uh, it might be that you meet all EU health and safety regulations. So three key messages about why you are good for the job. And as you know, Lucinda, if you don't know three reasons or three things about your product that are good, the buyers are never going to know them. They can't know them unless you know them. So a lot of the listeners, I'm sure, have heard about this idea of having an elevator pitch, which would be your opening when they say, take us through your career, tell us about yourself, which I have to say is a very generic, <laughs> unuseful opener. Better to have tell us about yourself in terms of what you believe you can bring to the role or take us through your career. But it's I an opportunity that though, if, it, if it they is. do ask a lazy question like that and you've prepared your three things, you could go wham in with just focus on those as opposed to try and talk through your CV for half an hour. Yeah, absolutely. But my whole point is, if you have the opportunity in any which way to get that elevator pitch in, give them three reasons why you are good, you're going to work that in at the beginning. The first of the three sales tips is that idea. And if you think of a maths equation, three times three is greater than nine. So three things said three times will be more retained and remembered by the interviewers than nine things said once. A lot of people will go into an interview spraying and praying, <laughs> telling them all sorts of things that they think they're good at, almost desperately throwing the kitchen sink at the panel. And what we really need to think about is three key messages. And your goal is to say them three times. So the idea would be you say them at the beginning in the elevator pitch when you summarize your career and what you offer. Please don't come up with generic things. I'm a great team player. I'm a brilliant communicator. And in terms of decision making, no better woman. I'm great at that. You need to come up with things that you can evidence. So I would say I've got three highlights, which I believe, or three things from my career I'd like to highlight to show my suitability for the post. The first would be my relevant experience. And then tell them a very, very short little bit about I've got this many years here. I specialize in this area. I'm also familiar with this and that and the other, which I believe means I can hit the ground running. And it's their relevant point, also yeah. to, the, to that role as, or organization, exactly. aren't they? Yeah. yeah, that you're linking it. Your second point might be that you've focused on professional development and learning. You've got a diploma or a certificate. You've shown that you're always willing to learn. And maybe your third highlight might be you've a proven track record of taking responsibility or leadership. So have three things that you can evidence. You're not going in with a big generic, I'm great at this, I'm brilliant at that. I would probably steer away from personal attributes, to be honest, to things such as focus on learning and development, leadership because uh, you've got examples of that or relevant experience yeah I'm thinking also from what we've just been is you know, relevant size of business or relevant industry if you can or product or something which you've got an affinity to that organization would be quite useful as one as one of them yeah because just thinking if you are someone who's come from a huge organization um, and you're going into an SME that is a really different environment culturally so can you come up with something where you can evidence that you you know you've got flexibility to work in a small business or you've got small business experience those sort of things I think make quite a difference culturally as well um, for, for an interview 
Yeah, and that's the whole point we said right at the beginning is this ability to tailor what you're doing. You've always got to tailor it to what you're going for, know what their needs are. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, so back to this, you're ideally going to say these three things at the beginning of your interview. I would like people to get practicing, and that's the whole point of the out loud practice, re-mentioning those points during their interview. So, for example, we're halfway through the interview. You might say to me, Lucinda, can you give us an example where you've shown teamwork one of my three key selling points might have been, just as you said, that you have worked, I've worked in several different teams and I've always been a very adaptable and flexible. That might be one of my three selling points. So when you ask me for my star, as everyone will know, situation, task, action, result to lay out your competency example. When you ask me for that example for teamwork, I am not going to go straight in with the example. I'm going to be cheeky and mention one of those three things I said earlier. So I might say, yeah, well, I mentioned earlier, I have experience of working in several teams across several departments in different sized organizations. The specific example I'm going to provide for you today, because it's relevant to an SME, is, and so you're a bit cheeky, a bit like a politician, you know your three messages, and you're going to, at any opportunity, just drop them into the conversation. Then, of course, the third time you're going to mention these three key selling points is going to be at the end when the panel says, is there anything you'd like to add? You're going to give a shortened version of that elevator pitch, your three key things to finish. My point is at the end of an interview, you've nothing to lose. And if it's the last thing they hear you say when you leave the room and they start marking and assessing you, you know, good job. So it's a little bit like thinking about a presentation again. People listen to the beginning and the end of a presentation far more. They're more engaged. They're concentrating more than they are in the middle. So you begin and end and almost bookend your interview with your three key selling points. Yeah, so that's the first of the three tips. That's the first. Come on, what's the second? Uh, the, second the second, yeah, the second is this idea, you mentioned it there, Lucinda, about being able to link what you're saying to the job. So I call this future pacing. It's about walking yourself into the future and pacing your example into being good at the job you're going for. So as we mentioned STAR, which I'm sure everyone is familiar with, situation, task, actions, result. I ask people to add a sentence on the end of that. So it might be the result was we reduced the number of errors by 14%. Um, the policy was implemented across the department and I was acknowledged for my work by my manager. I believe this demonstrates not only am I able to map out and plan a project, but it also shows I can delegate to junior members of the team, both of which I think are relevant in the role of operational manager or both which will be beneficial in the role of clinical facilitator. Or there's a lovely Irish phrase that they use over here. This experience will stand to me in the role of nurse manager. Stand so that to me. Standing to me is a great way. It encapsulates what I'm wanting people to do. I want people to join up the dots between what they're saying yeah. and what the benefit is to the company. It's like a, a features benefit. It's a features really. benefits. Yeah, I was just thinking that. Absolutely. Is it one of the things, I, I, and I don't know if I've got an opinion on this, it's almost about trying not to overstep the mark, isn't it? You, don't, you want to be humble, yet assertive. So I think the benefit is, is, is there. You're, you're saying, I think this will stand me in good stead. Would you ever say, would you agree? Would you see that as something that's beneficial for the role? I'm thinking, you know, in a, if in a sales position, you actually would, might try and get a nod or a close from somebody and, and ask something. I don't know if it's stepping over the line too far in an interview. 
Have you got an yeah, opinion? I think it might. I think you'd have to use your emotional intelligence and judge it. Uh, yeah. It might be that you might say, you know, this is something I understand will be useful in your company. Would I be right? Yeah, something like that. And even if you say be... understand, with that little bit of uncertainty, is probably better. And then actually, if they do agree, they'll be nodding. You can read their body language, can't you? Absolutely. See how it goes. So that's what I call future pacing. Don't just say the thing. Don't just say the feature. Don't just talk about your experience or your example for the star. You add that extra bit on the end, which is joining up the dots. Don't make it difficult for them. Yeah. Literally, you're sort of telling them how this will help them. You know you've done this properly, Lucinda, if you either finish with the name of the role. So I believe this will stand to me in the role of nurse manager. Or you say, um, the, I think this will stand to me in this role. So for me, that's how you know you've got to the end of the star you're just adding that extra bit on so the I'd end. Say, of the I, so I would, I think that would be highly relevant for this role. I think that would be relevant or help, a helpful skill to have in in this role. I'm not sure about stand me in our language. <laughs> <laughs> so what you're talking about? Stand me, in, stand me in good stead, maybe. Yeah, stand me in good stead. Or this, yeah, over here in Ireland, they would say this would stand to me. It's yeah. just, a, it's a say, and it just for me encapsulates, encapsulates what, what I'm trying is. to say. Yeah. Great. So yeah, let's move the third little sales tip, and this is a classic from the point of view: is we buy things because other people tell us they're good. That is a fact. If you think about TripAdvisor and Amazon, it's all about endorsements and ratings. I wouldn't buy anything on Amazon unless it has four and a half stars. Mm -hmm. Okay. I go to a new city. I'm looking to go and find a restaurant. I allow complete random strangers to tell me where I should go and buy a curry. Yeah. So yeah. the power of endorsement uh, is huge. And there are three ways, spookily, three ways that I ask people to think about how to use this. I call it third party referencing. So it normally is something you can slip into the result part of your star. And it's literally either generic. You might say, the students thanked me for, or I often receive positive feedback about, or the staff members acknowledge my input. So it's a very general woolly sort of... You said my manager earlier as well, didn't you? My manager gave me recognition for that. Yeah. So it's just this little bit that you're putting a little bit in there. The second way you do it is like that. Is it more specific? Obviously, if it's an internal interview, you name drop appropriately. You don't want to overdo it. You need to know the politics. All right. But you're going through your star. You say the result was we reduced errors by X, Y and Z. The policy was rolled out across the department. And my manager, Marjorie Smith, thanked me for my work. Now, it's quite interesting that the people on the panel don't actually have to know the name of the person you're name dropping to actually have the impression that it's far more credible. It sounds like it's a real example because you're saying that somebody acknowledged or thanked you. Mm. Yeah, now, absolutely. Depending on the role, you know, depending on the role, depending on who you are name dropping, it can have real power. But as I say, you don't overdo it, but it's just a little endorsement, which makes what you're saying sound so credible. Yeah. Um, the final way that you can do this is throughout the interview and it's a nice throwaway line you just would say as you can see from my cv i have extensive experience of xyz or as you can see from my paperwork i have focused on my professional development with this course that course and this qualification so that as you can see from my cv or paperwork it's just a throwaway line which means it's there it's in black and white it must be real Again, I don't know how common that is, but people just might not think of doing it, but it makes complete sense, doesn't it, to support things with evidence for that behaviour. You'd expect people to do it at, at an appraisal to come along with behavioural evidence, So, uh, um, but yeah, third-party evidence. 
I think okay. if a lot of people, a lot of people, just to finish on that, sorry, Lucinda, I think no. a lot of people actually assume that the panel members have read, digested and made notes from your CV or your application form. They sat up the night before reading through it and, and taking away those pertinent points. They haven't often done that. So being able to say it's in my form just sort of reaffirms that it's there and it's real. Like you say, it's evidence. And actually, the thing also, thinking back about the position of the interviewers, quite often they would be seeing a number of people in a day. So they they perhaps have just looked at the CV before and even if they had read them previously it's not fresh in their mind so it's about making it easy for that interviewer um, and again this, the whole point about selling yourself to them it's it's allowing them to uh, make their job easy really because you they won't necessarily have done that that background homework you can't Absolutely. assume that you can't assume that the connections are being made so it's spelling it out and making it easy to make the right decision from your point of view it's anything you can do to make it easy um, and anybody who's dialing into the podcast who has sat on the interviewer side of the table knows that people do sort of start blending into each other you'll remember the one or two great candidates the one or two that bless them were horrendous but a lot of people sound very the same after you've done a full day or two or three days of interviewing yeah. so anything you can make it easy uh, for the panel to hear your key messages the better that structuring is key Yes. Okay, great. So remind us of the three things again, Joe. just to, in summary, because we've gone into those in quite a lot yeah. of depth. Yep. Yeah. So in terms of three tips for selling yourself, because that's what I believe people struggle with genuinely. Like you say, a lot of people have a lot of experience, a lot of skills, but they just let themselves down and that selling side of things. So the first one is three messages three times and that being more effective than nine things said once. The second thing is what I call future pacing. So finish off your stars, finish off your competency examples by linking it to the job. And then the third one is the tip of just popping in uh, little third party references or endorsements or acknowledgements that you've had to make it sound even more credible. Brilliant. And obviously you've rehearsed this in advance. Okay, great. So I can see all of these things. I'm, I'm sure actually the majority of these things, many of us don't do, we wouldn't think about doing. So it can make a huge, uh, hugely increase our chances of getting through the, the interview and getting, being selected. What else, what other tips would you have for us? Two more. <laughs> One is the ability to pause. All right. I think a lot of people let themselves down at interview. They know they could come up with a pretty comprehensive, uh, you know, interesting, relevant answer if they just give themselves the space to do that. There is a tendency that people get asked a question and they just rush straight into their answer um, and they're literally thinking and talking at the same time. Mm. So for me, it's the ability to pause. I ask my candidates to either use a visual anchor or a kinesthetic anchor to be able to do this well. Pausing for three or four seconds. Now, we both speak quickly, Lucinda. It's probably a good lesson for us both. Mm -hmm. Is so beneficial before you just launch into the verbal diarrhea of an answer. A visual anchor would be that you're in a meeting room. If you're doing this virtually, obviously, you can have something on the wall printed off yourself. The question comes in. Uh, so tell me, Joe, uh, did you have any challenges or any resistance to your idea? Look at that visual pause button and stop yourself just for a second or two while you think of structure. So the answer question comes in, I'm going to stop and go, yeah, well, there were two issues in terms of resistance. One was X, Y, Z. Secondly, la, la, la. And this is how I overcame it. Or they might say, Tell us a little bit about how you manage risk, Joe. 
well, there are three ways that I manage risk on a daily basis. First, I do this. Second, I do this. And third, and probably most importantly, I do this. This would be three ways I manage risk. It just means it's like, hallelujah, you've got a nice clean structure and you're able to do a nice ending. I find a lot of people talk and talk and talk. They see the panel glazing over. They start doubting whether they're even on track or answering the question anymore. And they fall off a cliff and go, <laughs> yeah, so that's it really. Yeah. And there's just no structure. Um, so three or four seconds is fine. Just pause. That's the visual anchor, a kinesthetic anchor. It might sound a little bit simple, but a lot of my candidates and clients say it's helped them on the day is I yet get them to use their index finger. Literally, they've got one hand on each leg, perhaps, and they press down like a pause button on an electronic press down on the flesh while you're listening carefully to the question. Make sure you understand the question and obviously ask if you don't have clarity Hold it down for a couple more seconds while you think, okay, what structure will I use? Then lift it, then go. Um, I had a recent instance where one of my uh, one of my clients said she asked for some feedback after she knew one of the panel members from a past job. And the uh, person who she asked said, as you left the room, the chairperson turned to the other two members of the panel and said, wow, wasn't she the easiest to listen to today, ladies? Brilliant. She'd gone in different from before where she waffled and rambled and just yeah. used that technique. She used a visual anchor, but the kinesthetic one is a great one. Just stop, stop, stop. It Don't actually rush. makes people, it is easier for people to listen to, isn't it? Cause you're, yeah, you're pausing it. So if you give that structure, it's easier for them to process or digest the key points as opposed to you starting with the waffle. Um, but also I think it's something in terms of, it looks more credible because if someone stops and actually thinks it, because you have rehearsed in this because if you've been listening to this then you're going I've rehearsed it actually makes it more like you're rather than just delivering something that you've rehearsed it makes it seem like you're actually accessing a real relevant example and you've had to think of it so I think that makes you more credible in terms of the example that you're coming out with from the point of view of the interviewer potentially yeah absolutely and over here in Ireland in the HSC which is the equivalent of the NHS there they they give you a mark for your interpersonal communication skills they don't ask a specific competency question about it but obviously you're walking the talk you're actually delivering great answers that have a structure have an ending and you know you're going to get a higher mark for that particular interpersonal yeah. communication skill mark so that was one and then the last point and I guess it's timely because we'll be finishing soon is at the end a lot, of my a lot of my people say to me, should I ask a question? Or Joe, I can't think of a great question to ask. Genuinely, other coaches may disagree. I've always advised people don't ask a crap question for the sake no. of asking a question. Yeah. You've probably had it while you've been recruiting recently, Lucinda. These same old answers. Will we get feedback? Yeah, of course you will. And when will we know? Well, when I've decided. I just think they're really non... Yeah, unless you've got an insightful question. Yeah, don't bother. No, and you also don't want to ask a question about something that you should have known from your research. It mm. doesn't look good if you're asking a very basic question about the organization or the department because you haven't done your homework. So mm. I say to people, when they say, do you have any questions or is there anything you, you'd like to add? I would say, I don't have any questions that are relevant for today, thank you. You're not saying you never have questions, but nothing that's pertinent or nothing that is relevant for today. I hope I've outlined that. Number one, I have the relevant experience and specific knowledge of XYZ. I secondly shown a very strong commitment to personal development and look forward to learning. Da, 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 da. Yeah. And finally, I have a proven track record of leadership, which I believe I can bring to your organization. And I thank you for your time. So you're doing a mini version of your elevator pitch yeah. at the end. It's interesting. You're very much taking control 
by doing that aren't you as well rather than swinging it back it's uh i can see that 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 works yes definitely i i can't so you wouldn't do the one where you get the classic salesperson goes oh have have i do i need to add anything or have i are you going to buy me kind of thing when they say you know how have i got on type question i mean i don't particularly like it as an interview but they, there are schools of thought with you're going for a sales role where they say oh you've got to close uh, I don't know. I think it does depend on the industry. It depends on the job you're going for. It's funny you say that. I got my very first job within pharmaceuticals based on I did. I closed. Yeah. Um, and he said, wait outside the room. I think I was the last of 18 candidates. And they came out and said, based on the fact you tried to close us, we're going to give you the role. So I do. It does work, but it has to be the right industry and yeah. the, right, the right situation. Yeah. You definitely don't want to make a clanger and no. finish off badly. Maybe not for an HR role, but if you sales role, then yeah. <laughs> it's expected. Yeah. It's almost would be frank on if you didn't. Fair enough. Okay, great. So as ever, Joe, um, absolutely packed full of content. Have we got everything that you were going to share? Being a process girl, I know you would have planned what you were going to share with us. Is there anything else you need to add? Or is there nothing relevant for this session? <laughs> Are you trying to close me? Uh, yeah, no, I think that covers everything. It's, a, it's, it's an important thing. I guess my, my overall thoughts are you don't leave it to chance. You put a lot of work into research uh, posts, you know, researching posts and having a look what's out there. You put some effort, hopefully, into your CV and your covering letter. I'm sure nobody goes in winging an interview, but don't just be studying the books and reading the strategy documents and the policy documents and, and cramming for an exam. It is so much more than the content. You know, for me, first impressions, you've got to think about your nonverbals and you've got to go in and present the thing is that you're presenting yourself rather than a, a topic in a, you know, in a meeting. But all of the same things apply. You have to do the how, not just the what. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, and it, it's, it's so easy to be superficial. What you're doing really is you're applying your knowledge to that role. And actually that is key um, as, a, as a skill to show that you can, it's just not tactical. You can actually go in and, and deliver value in the context that you're applying for it. Yeah. Okay. Well, fantastic, Joe. As ever, packed full of content, really valuable. And I can't wait to put this out because I know it's so relevant for people. But of course, if people want to get hold of you, I mean, you're like we started. Your last podcast episode was one of the most downloaded episodes. And I'll put the link um, in for people because it was so useful for them as interviewer skills. And we got great feedback. It made it into our best bits of 2019. And when I was trying to tag you, um, people couldn't because you're not all that visible on social media. You're a well-kept secret, aren't you, over there in Ballyvaughan? So if people wanted to connect with you directly or get hold of you, I mean, are you, taking, are you available for coaching? I know you do coaching. How would people approach you? Yeah, I guess really through my webpage it would be the best. Um, I have, say the webpage is www.i4training.ie, obviously based in Ireland. Um, I have, like everybody, been moving. And it's to for the number, isn't remote. it? It's I4 yeah. with a number. Yeah, sorry. Letter I, number four, training.ie. Um, yeah, it's interesting. I know it's, it, that, you know, not being very visible on Twitter or LinkedIn um, and largely going by reputation. I don't advertise at all. I just think it's, it's similar. I find being a coach or being a trainer, it's a bit like being a chef. You're only as good as your last cake that you bake. But if you make a, a great cake, then people will tell their friends about it. So it's all word of mouth or reputation. But yeah, absolutely. If people would like to get in touch, I have some, you know, worksheets or I have um, videos and things like that. It would be through my webpage, Lucinda. Thanks for that. 
brilliant i highly highly recommend joe's cakes as well but i don't know if they're available (laughs) (laughs) mail order no (laughs) all right well um yes so joe's quite hard to get hold of on linkedin and things but you can get hold of her through her webpage and we'll put that on the show notes as well of course um and you can access those resources joe um as ever it's been a pleasure really really useful and uh, thank you so much for being a guest on the hr uprising you're welcome lucinda have a great weekend thank you Thank you for listening to the HR Uprising, proudly brought to you by Actor Software, the joined up performance and talent management solution. You can access links to any of the information or resources mentioned in the show via the podcast page at www.hruprising.com. If you like what we do, please subscribe, tell your colleagues and leave a review. Thank you for listening to the HR Uprising.